Without this doctrine, we can't even understand verses 12 through 21 of Romans 5. And without understanding these verses, the truths of the next major section of the book, all the way through chapter 8, will be beyond us. So it's important that we focus on this for a bit. But in a parallel way, in order for us to understand what it means for us to be in Christ, we need to understand what it means for us to have been in Adam, which is where today's passage starts. There's a lot in this text that keeps theologians arguing. Uh, And quite frankly, as far as complete human comprehension is concerned, I really feel like the truths of this passage are beyond reach. And we talked about understanding something comprehensively last week. But on the other hand, the truths of these passages are wonderfully simple and clear when we accept them in humble faith as God's Word. But that's hard for us. We want explanations of everything We feel like we're the most intelligent generation to have ever lived, and so we want to understand everything. Even though we walk around under the influence of the law of gravity without fully understanding that, unless that's what you studied in college. Every day we stare at a screen that's connected somehow to every other screen in the entire world through Wi-Fi, And we don't understand that at all, but we know that when it goes down, the world comes to an end. So let's be careful about demanding more of God than we do of our own world. There is a lot in our world that we accept as true, even though we do not fully comprehend it. We know parts of it. We know enough to believe it. Well, when it comes to God's Word, the fact that God gave it to us and God wrote it and inspired it is enough for us to believe it. So when we see these truths in that way, it lifts a a huge burden off of our shoulders. This is one of the most important texts in the Bible because it communicates to us the fall of the entire human race through Adam. In verse 12, which we're about to read again, when it says the man, that's Adam. That's what we're talking about. Let's look at that verse. Verse 12 says, Therefore, just as sin came into the world through one man, and death through sin, and so death spread to all men because all sinned. So again, this is the beginning of a a series of arguments that Paul is going to make. It starts with Adam, and it builds how showing that we are in union with him. He is the head of our race, but our union with him is quite different than our union with Christ, which we'll find out. Paul has been teaching, and we've covered in here, covered it in here a few times, that our justification is due to Christ's righteousness being imputed to us. Imputed to us. 
credited to us. And a lot of people are reluctant to accept that truth. They insist on earning their salvation and they reject the idea of imputation. So I think here, Paul, to help you believe in that principle, is showing you that you've already been treated on that basis through Adam. Adam's sin has been imputed to you. So let's take a look at the flow of this passage. If we start with verse 12, it teaches that sin, followed by death, came into the world by Adam. But you'll notice at the end of verse 12, there's a hyphen or a dash in your Bible, which means what follows is a parenthesis. And I don't just mean the little brackets, I mean what's inside the brackets. It is a truth set beside another truth. That's what a parenthesis is. And it's an explanation. Paul is explaining here what he means by saying, because all sinned in verse 12. So verses 13 and 14 really are there to explain that. They are set next to it as an explanation. But when we get to verse 14, Paul throws in another parenthesis to elaborate on the parallel between Adam and Christ, which is what he suggested in verse 14. So that parenthesis is really a parenthesis within a parenthesis, and by the time you, you know, look through all this, you get really frustrated with Paul. So it's really not until verse 18 that we get the continuation of the thought that he started in verse 12. And I only tell you that to kind of let you know what's coming and to really emphasize the parallelism between Adam and Christ. So according to these verses, believers are now in Christ, which we talked about last week, just as we were once in Adam. That's the similarity. But there's a contrast as well. Because in Adam, the race experienced sin, leading to condemnation and death. While in Christ, believers experienced righteousness, which leads to justification and life. So if we were to put verses 12 and 18 together and leave out his little explanations for now, it would say something like this. On the one hand, just as sin entered the world through one man and death through sin, and in this way death came to all men because all sinned, that's verse 12. That is, just as the result of one trespass was condemnation for all men, so also, on the other hand, the result of one act of righteousness was justification that brings life for all men. This teaches that there were two great acts in history. Adam's act which brought condemnation and death, and the act of Jesus, which brought justification and life. And the results, it says in Scripture, came to us by virtue of our union with Adam on the one hand and with our union with Jesus Christ on the other. Simple, right? 
So before we get into any kind of analysis, which we will do, of the truths here, let's walk through um, at least verse 12 together. Let's look at that verse again. Therefore, just as sin came into the world through one man and death through sin, and so death spread to all men because all sinned. First, we see that the verse starts with the word therefore, which connects it back to what Paul has already written, namely the fact that we are reconciled to God by the sacrifice of his son. That's in verses 8 through 11. Then Paul begins the analogy of Christ with Adam. The principle here that he's teaching is that the far-reaching effect on countless others was generated, quote, through one man. That's what the Bible says. So the first thing that Paul asserts is that through Adam, sin came into the world. Through Adam, sin came into the world. He does not speak of sins, plural. He doesn't say through Adam, sins came into the world. He says sin, singular. And so in this sense, it doesn't represent a particular act of unrighteousness, but rather the inherent propensity to unrighteousness. We are bent towards sin. That's when it came into the world through Adam. Here, we're talking about mankind as a single entity. There is a solidarity here. Divinely ordered solidarity of all mankind. And Adam represents the entire human race that is descended from him. And it really doesn't matter how many subgroups you are. We all came from Adam. Therefore, when Adam sinned, Scripture says all mankind sinned. And because his first sin transformed his inner nature, that depraved nature was transmitted to his posterity, and every one of us are born with it. Because he became spiritually polluted, all of his descendants would be polluted in the same way. In fact, you could say that pollution has intensified. Instead of evolving, we'll get to this in a minute, as humanists like to say, man has devolved, degenerating into greater and greater sinfulness. So, I will say that this idea of our corporate identity as mankind, as one unit bothers some people, especially in a day like this where your individual identity is the supreme measure of everything. It doesn't matter what you actually are, as long as you identify as something else, then we have to treat you that way. But the ancient Jews understood well this corporate identity. They never thought of themselves as isolated personalities or even a mass of families or of fellow Jews. They looked at all the other races in the same way. A Canaanite or an Edomite or an Egyptian was inextricably connected to all the, other, all the others of his race. What one of them did affected all the others. 
And what the others did affected him in a way that's difficult for modern man to even comprehend. We are so individually oriented. And we actually close ourselves off into our little enclaves. That it's hard for us to understand that theory. But it's on this basis that God frequently punished or blessed entire tribes, cities, or nations because of what a few or even one of them did. You remember the story of Sodom, Sodom and Gomorrah? Abraham asked God if he would spare Sodom, if he could find only a few righteous people. God agreed. Abraham failed. That's in Genesis 18. Maybe you know the story of the fall of Jericho. First major conquest for the people of Israel. They crossed the Jordan. They blew their horns and the walls came down. And so what happened, though, was an interesting story of a man named Achan. You may remember that God held Israel accountable. Remember, they lost their next battle. And he eventually destroyed Achan's family along with him because of that one man's disobedience in keeping for himself some of the booty that they got from Jericho. Instead of giving it, he kept it. And it cost him his life and his family's life and no telling how many soldiers' life in the next battle. One man. In the same way, although with enormously greater consequences, the sin of Adam was passed on to all of his descendants. And we'll look at some different takes on this truth in just a minute. But for now... Let's just say this, when Adam sinned in the Garden of Eden, he sinned not only as a man, but as man. You see the distinction there? He didn't just sin as Adam, a man. He sinned as man, as Adam, mankind. When he and his wife, who Genesis 2.24 says were one flesh, sinned against God, all their descendants, the entire human race would share in that sin. And from that sin comes alienation from God, and from that comes subjection to death. Those were the consequences, and everyone will share in it. Remember we read last week, 1 Corinthians 15.22 says that, For as in Adam, all die. There's something we need to understand. The fact that Adam and Eve weren't just historical figures, but were the original human beings from whom all others have descended, descended is absolutely critical to Paul's argument here. And it's critical to the efficacy of the gospel of Jesus Christ. They had to be real people, and they had to be our real ancestors. You see, if a historical Adam did not represent all mankind in sinfulness, then historical Christ could not represent all mankind in righteousness. If all man did not fall with Adam, all men could not be saved by Christ, who was the second and the last Adam. 
So back to verse 12. Not only did sin enter the world through Adam, but it says death through sin. You see, Adam was not created a mortal being that is subject to death. God warned Adam. He warned him about disobedience by eating. He said, the day that you eat of the fruit of that tree, you shall surely die. Death, the consequence of sin, entered through Adam. Death is the unfailing fruit of the poison that entered Adam's heart and the heart of every one of his descendants. I mean, look, even tiny babies experience death. They die before they've ever committed a, a single sin. So it's not the committing of sins that causes us to die. It's the fact that we are sinners that makes us subject to death. A person does not become a sinner by committing sins, but rather he commits sins because he is by nature a sinner. You see, sin brings several kinds of death. We know that death means separation. So Adam's and our first kind of death is separation from God. Listen to how Paul describes this to the Ephesians. Chapter 2, verse 1. And you were dead in your trespasses and sins, in which you once walked, following the course of this world, following the prince of the power of the air, the spirit that is now at work in the sons of disobedience. So the unregenerate, the lost, are very much alive to the world, but they are dead to God and to the things of God. But there's a second and really an obvious kind of death, and that is that sin brings physical death. You could call that separation from other human beings. Adam did not immediately die when he sinned in the garden, but he became subject to physical death the moment he sinned, and he did eventually die. But there's a final kind of death that sin brings, and it is the eternal death and really an immeasurably worse extension of the first, which was separation from God. It is an eternal separation from God. Romans 21.8 refers to this as the second death. This death brings not only eternal separation from God, but also eternal torment in hell. That's death. Those are the consequences of sin. Now things get interesting in our passage, back to verse 12, because the text next says this, so death spread to all men because all sinned. So death spread to all men because all sinned. Now this is hard because we just talked about babies. I know it's unpopular and unpleasant to talk about dying babies, so I don't want to go over all that again, but clearly you understand that they did not perish as a consequence of committing sins. So when it says death spread to all men because all sinned, it raises some questions. I mean, we can understand the progression. The consequence of sin is death. So it's 
if sin spread to all, then so did death. But then it says, because all sinned. The tense of that word in the Greek language indicates that it was at one point in time that all men sinned. All of us sinned at one point in time. Well, that's confusing because all of us were not alive at the same point in time when you think of mankind. So it just doubles down on the questions. Until you consider that that time was the first sin of Adam. His sin was mankind's sin because all mankind was represented by Adam. All sinned in the sin of Adam. Let me say it again. All sinned in the sin of Adam. Now let me just throw this in in case you're wondering. Paul does not even attempt to make this more understandable. In fact, he himself doesn't claim to understand it fully. We don't know. I mean, he's sitting there writing this letter under the inspiration of the Holy Spirit, and the Holy Spirit says, write this down. That sin resulted in death, which spread to all men because all men sinned. Write it down. Paul simply declared that Adam's sin was transmitted to all of his posterity because that truth was revealed to him by God. That's all God wanted to say about it. We have trouble with that, don't we? We would like to sit down in front of God and say, I've got just a couple of questions. So let's look deeper at this whole idea of sin and death. Uh, again, verse 12 is going to be as far as we get this morning. So verse 12 assumes two great truths, which you can't really deny. The universality of sin and the universality of death, right? Okay, I hope we're all on the same page now. Because there's hardly anybody who would be foolish enough to challenge them. I mean, when it comes to sin, even the most thoroughly secular person will not claim to be perfect, will not claim to be sinless. He say, after all, I'm no saint, which acknowledges Paul's claim in Romans chapter 3 that all have sinned. So the universality of sin is pretty much acknowledged. But then there's the universality of death, again, rarely challenged, if ever. There's nothing certain in life but death and taxes. Well, that's where we compare the absolute certainty of one event to the relative certainty of another. But that raises some really big questions. How can we explain that? Why is sin universal? And why is death the universal experience of all? I mean, just consider the law of averages. How many people have been alive? Shouldn't we expect that at least one somewhere could live without sin? Someone other than God 
Or maybe, golly, of all the people that have ever lived, shouldn't there be some person somewhere that's been alive since they were born back whenever and hasn't experienced death? But once we get to a certain age, we die. In answering these questions, we come to a parting of ways between Christianity and secular thought. The secular mind says two things. They said there's no connection between sin and death. And they say that both of those can be explained naturally. So as far as they are concerned, the secular mindset sees sin as merely an imperfection, one that is soon to be overcome. The very view of sin fits into their evolutionary framework of life where they believe that everything is evolving from the less complex and the less perfect to the more complex and the more perfect. And they'll say something like, well, the sin only means that we're not yet where we hope to be. We're a little behind schedule and where we will eventually be. There are a couple of things wrong with this. First, if sin is just an imperfection, then we really shouldn't call it sin, should we? I mean, it's something that evolution will eventually take care of. It shouldn't be considered a sin. We shouldn't even look down on it as something less desirable than the next inevitable stage of evolution. Sin isn't bad at all. And once you concede that sin isn't bad, there can no longer be any conversation about virtue. Nobody can said to be better or worse than someone else. No action can be inherently wrong. There are lots of consequences to this worldview. The second problem is this. If sin is only an imperfection to be eliminated in time as a result of this inevitable upward movement of the race, so why has so much evil been around for so long? If sin is only a minor imperfection, why hasn't that imperfection been eliminated long before this? I mean, you can imagine how these questions can continue. When you look at the historical record left by human beings, is it even honest for us to say that there's been progress? Are we really better than our predecessors? Are we more virtuous than the Greeks? More noble than the barbarians even? It's hard to say. I mean, we believe that technology equals better people. But I wonder if that's really true. I would say no. But unless you believe that we are actually much, much better, then this alone suggests that sin is a much greater problem than this evolutionary framework allows. The other inescapable reality is death. This one is inherent in nature, the secularists will say. And it doesn't have anything to do with evolution. It's not going to go away. We're not going to evolve ourselves out of this. It's just natural. And it's inescapable for living things. And this is a better point for them because simply observing people, you can see that they die. We can speak of a process in which organisms are born, they grow, they decline, and then they die. 
The problem is there's something inside of us which believes this isn't right. We long for more. We shouldn't die. We should live forever. Which is why we have so many images in religion, in history, and mythology of the places where you do not die. Places like Mount Olympus or Valhalla or Hades or Sheol or the underworld or Nirvana or paradise or heaven. Every civilization acknowledges this longing for life. So what's the Christian answer? The Christian answer is that death is not natural, but rather it's God's punishment for sin. Moreover, sin entered the world through the act of one man. His name was Adam. And from Adam, sin and its consequence, death, passed to his descendants. That essentially is a summary of verse 12. But the Christian view is a little more complicated than just that. I need to acknowledge there are many views. Just be careful if you start looking into all the Christian views of Romans 5.12. There are at least four that I ran into in my study. But they all arise out of an important question. If death was passed to the race through Adam, how exactly did that happen? Why should it have happened? Why should something Adam did affect everyone? I only want to focus briefly this morning on two of these theories, one of which I believe is true. The other one is just interesting. And the interesting one, the first theory that's out there is called Augustinianism, and sometimes it's referred to as realism. This view was proposed by St. Augustine, and it's been held by many theologians, especially during the Middle Ages, some even today. It's sometimes called the realistic or the seminal view. And it holds this, that the human race sinned in Adam because in a literal, physical sense, all human generations were in Adam at that time. All future generations were in Adam at that time. So when he acted, the whole race acted. And when he was judged, the whole race was judged literally in him. And people ask sometimes, how can God blame me for sinning when all I'm doing is what comes naturally? I have a sin nature, right? How can God hold me responsible for acting out a nature he gave me before I was even born? And the nature we've seen, the answer this morning is that it's because of Adam. And they reply, well, how can God hold people responsible for what Adam did? When we weren't even there in the garden. This, an, this theory is an answer to that question. It operates on the premise that the only way God could justly and morally condemn us and what Adam did is if we were really there participating in the act. If we were really there and somehow in our pre-existent souls were there Before we were born with our bodies, our souls were there with Adam so that when he sinned, we sinned because we were there. That's the theory. Most people are kind of inclined to discount this. It sounds a little medieval, kind of strange. In fact, 
I would go so far as to say, even if that was true, that we were there. We were not conscious entities capable of sinning at the time. What exactly did we contribute to it? But I don't think we can dismiss this so quickly. There's a small part of me that thinks there might be some truth to this. Just a very small part. And that's because of Hebrews chapter 7. Hebrews 7, beginning in verse 9, talks about Levi, Melchizedek, and Abraham. Let me read this to you. And it starts in with words that just make me scratch my head. It starts by saying, at least in the English Standard Version, one might even say that Levi himself, who receives tithes, paid tithes through Abraham. For he was still in the loins of his ancestor when Melchizedek met him. One might even say that Levi himself, who receives tithes, paid tithes through Abraham, for he was still in the loins of his ancestor when Melchizedek met him. Okay, let me give you a little background. The point that the author is trying to make here is that the descendants of Levi paid tithes to Melchizedek because they were still in the loins of Abraham, their forefather, when he paid tithes to him. Now, here's some timeline. We know about Abraham. Well, Abraham's son was named Isaac. Isaac's son was named Jacob, and Jacob had a son named Levi. So now we know about Abraham. But what about Abraham and Melchizedek? Melchizedek is a very mysterious fellow. You can read about him in Genesis 14. He's also mentioned as a type of Christ in Psalm 110. And then in Hebrews, the author of Hebrews in chapter 5, 6, and 7 teaches what the encounter in Genesis means. There are lots of lessons there, but essentially Abraham paid tithes to Melchizedek. And there are lots of lessons. We're not going to go into those. So the passage says that Levi, or it could be said, that Levi, who was Abraham's great-grandson, paid tithe to Melchizedek because he was there in Abraham's loins. And theologian says, well, that has implications. Because of Hebrews 7, the realistic or Augustinian view can't be dismissed too lightly. Though in my opinion, it really doesn't capture the meaning of the passage. I don't believe this means that Levi was literally there in the loins of Abraham. I believe it means he was represented there, as we'll get to later. So the second view is federalism. doesn't even have a Bible name, does it? It's like you're in government class. Federalism. In virtually every group believes this. Calvinists, Arminians, Lutherans, even rationalists all seem to accept this. And that view is that God appointed Adam the head or the representative of the race so that he could stand, uh, that he would stand for them and they would be accounted either just or sinful on the basis of his obedience or disobedience of God's command. He was our representative. I mean, Adam means mankind. The word does. And it's called federalism because of the way an ambassador of a country might act on behalf of his country. If he makes 
some kind of an arrangement or a treaty or whatever. It binds all the citizens of his country. He's acting as their representative. And boy, oh boy, do people complain about this. Where do we start? No condemnation without representation. You could hear the colonists shouting that out. But indeed, there is representation. That's the whole point here. But people squirm and say, I didn't choose this representative. I mean, look, in this country, we elect our representatives. Whether you're living or dead, you cast a ballot for your representative, and then they take office. How is it right for God to appoint one man to represent all kinds of people who don't even have a voice in the election? Well, remember the character of God for just a moment. When God selects your representative, he makes that selection infallibly and impeccably Who would you want to represent you? I mean, think about it. Is there a person in history that you would want to represent you? Yourself? I mean, I'm here to tell you that nowhere in space or time have we been more perfectly represented than we were in the Garden of Eden by the representative that God chose for us. His name was Adam. Adam was perfect. He was not affected by the fall. The fall had not happened yet. He had never sinned. And here's what kills me. How many prohibitions did Adam have? One. Don't eat of that tree. Everything else in the garden is yours. Not that tree. I mean, if I'm an odds maker, I'm thinking that's pretty good. We got a guy that is the perfect embodiment of what God meant man to be when he created him. Perfectly. No flaws. Intelligent. Ethical. Probably good looking. It's terrible. It's not fair. And he had one law that he had to follow. So if all that's true, how can we curse God and say it's not fair? When we complain about being misrepresented by Adam, all we do is prove the perfection of that representation because Adam essentially questioned God, and that's what we're doing as well. Those who say, I don't like that, It's not appropriate for God to accept the representation of one person for another. That's not fair. If you want to hold that principle consistently, then you must also reject the principle of your representation by Christ on the cross. That's not fair either. The principle of representation is at the very heart and soul of our salvation. So we can't just reject it, we've got to be careful. So Martin Lloyd-Jones says, Adam's sin is imputed to us in exactly the same way that Christ's righteousness is imputed to us. We inherit, of course, a sinful nature from Adam, 
But that is not what condemns us. What condemns us and what makes us subject to death is the fact that we have all sinned in Adam, that we are all held guilty of sin. It is our union with Adam that accounts for all our trouble. And it is our corresponding union with Christ that accounts for all our salvation. I want to ask our praise team to come to the front. I want to close with one really short little lesson. Because it's on the topic of not understanding anything fully. So I don't want you to raise your hand, but I suspect there are people who fall into that category this morning. I just, I don't understand this fully. I understand parts of it, but I'm not going to walk out of here with a good feeling. I want to use a man from the Old Testament named Habakkuk to teach us a lesson about not understanding God fully. Habakkuk had a hard time understanding a few things. He had questions. He had a lot of questions. First, he couldn't understand why God wouldn't bring revival to his people. In chapter 1, verse 2, he says, O Lord, how long shall I cry for help and you will not hear? Or cry to you violence and you will not save? I need revival. That wasn't all. He couldn't at all understand how God could punish his people by using the Chaldeans. The Chaldeans were pagans and immeasurably more wicked than the Israelites, but that's who God used. Habakkuk 1.13, you who are of purer eyes than to see evil and cannot look at wrong, why do you idly look at traitors and remain silent when the wicked swallows up the man more righteous than he? Finally, realizing that God's ways were beyond human comprehension, Habakkuk closed with this thought. Chapter 3, though the fig tree should not blossom, nor fruit beyond the vines, the produce of the olive fail, and the fields yield no food, the flock be cut off from the fold, and there be no herd in the stalls. Yet I will rejoice in the Lord. I will take joy in the God of, of my salvation. God, the Lord, is my strength. Habakkuk learned that when we cannot understand God's ways, we need to avoid the quicksand, uh, quicksand of merely retreating into human reason and stand on the faith on the rock of God's righteous character. That's what he did. We've still got some bad news to go over about Adam. But rest assured, Jesus Christ, the second Adam, brings with him the good news of the gospel. So this system of representation is in fact supremely good news for us today. May we be able to rejoice in God's plan. Let's pray.